How would you use a Rat King in your own campaign? What would it be like to play in a game as a Vortex Dragon? What attributes does a Pumpkin Leshy have again? On Random Encounters, we answer those questions and more. Each week, I, Nick, pull a random monster from a random manual. Matt and Brandon try to guess what it is based on flavor text, and then we all discuss. We have over 20 manuals to pull from, and over 5,000 monsters contained therein. We're in for a podcast that's sure to be, choose your own answer, A. Scary, B. Adorable, C. Funny, D. Intriguing, E. All of the above. So tune in every Monday for a new monster to play as, add to your campaign, or just be introduced to for the very first time. That's Random Encounters from the Feckless Momes Audio Network. Search your cast catcher of choice and you'll find us there. Subscribe so you don't miss a single monster. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to check off your hydration goals, fluff up your sheepskin rug, and fill your pipe full of nostalgia. Because it's time to talk tall to me. I'm Omen Said. And I am Nick McGill. We are Feckless Moans. And this is Talk Tall to Me. Talk Tall to Me is a voyage into the past, an excavation of the last five decades of the work and life of prog rock band Jethro Tull. And as preeminent Tulkiologists, we are here to weekly go through each track and each episode is a weekly dissection of each of those tracks. Someday we may be eminent, but for the moment we're just preeminent. Once we get more than like four subscribers, then we'll be. That's right. We'll be bigger. So Nick, what song are we lovingly dissecting this week? This week is the first bonus track off of the second album. Not uh, not standard release, but when they did the re-release on the digital CD format. This is track number 11 off of that, and it is Living in the Past. Hit it. Hey, Omen, this song has a history to it. This is a big one. I'm, I'm just going to ask everyone to, you know, take your expectations and lower them. Because there's not any way that we... I mean, we... in general, that's a good way to approach the podcast. Well, and, but... and life, really. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's any way that we could cover... You know, we could do an entire podcast just based on this song. Truly. There is a lot to unpack. Let's start with some facts. How about that? Yeah, give it to me. Give me what you got. You did. I know you did some preemptive research here. So let's. I see did it. some preeminent research. Preeminent research. So living in the past, it was recorded actually before the sessions for the album Stand Up. Yep. But it was released after Stand Up actually had already um, dropped. It it was released in England. 
uh, in the UK while Jethro Tull was still touring in the US. So as a single, correct? As a single, as a radio yeah. single. So I, I think it was, you know, a little bit of a way to keep the name Jethro Tull on the on the lips of the populace, if you will. Sure. And it did pretty well at that time in 1969. It reached number three in the UK charts. It got up to five in Ireland. It got up to number 15 in New Zealand. And overall, for the year of 1969 in the UK, it was 53rd. It was ranked 50, the 53rd most popular requested song on UK radio. It's not bad. Kind of a big deal, really. Yeah. I mean, by far their most successful single up to that point. For their second year in existence, for their second album. And let's see, because they were touring. So it was before the, the album even came out, right? Must have been. They recorded it before the album came out. I think that they released it after the album came out. Oh, okay. Because stand-up was, was released when? Late 69, right? Right. So I think it was, it was released the same year. Yeah. But a little bit later. Okay. And I think it was released alongside of Driving Song. Yeah, it would have it would have been doubled up. I think that's how they did singles releases is there was a B-side to the single as well. Oh, right. Of course, because it's you're literally releasing it on on a wax disc. A teeny tiny one. Teeny tiny wax disc. Teeny tiny disc. Teeny tiny wax disc. <laughs> so these <laughs> in April. Tw oh, so it was April that they released it and it was paired up with Driving Song. OK. In 72, it got released paired up with Christmas Song. Right. In 76, it got released. And these are all singles, by the way. So they're re-releasing this as a single multiple times. Right. But uh, in 76, it got released with Requiem. Ooh. I, not, do I know Requiem? Oh, yes, it's from um, Minstrel, right? Uh, that sounds right. In 93, all the way in 93... It got released with Hardliner, which 93 has to be like Crest or something along those lines, I think. Catfish Rising, perhaps. Catfish, yeah. Um, Requiem is from Minstrel in the Gallery, by the way. Nailed it. And then... <laughs> in... you, you get a biscuit for this episode, Nick. Yay! And then on... Oh, in April of 2013, on limited edition vinyl, it got... Living in the Past was released with Witch's Promise teacher and life is a long song so this i mean this song is it's safe to say a bit iconic it's a bit of a flagship for the band in a way as a as a standalone song i mean they there was even a living in the past tour yeah it has so much of what is iconic musically about the band that i think it's it does act as a good representation of the sound and of their work it's almost like an ambassador song it is certainly one of their most well-known and i i did not realize that i always thought like aqualung or locomotive breath well certainly they're well known whenever i had mentioned to people like in high school that i listened to tall it was always like aqualung that they mentioned i no one ever mentioned living in the past i think that when we were Young, the songs that were in the popular consciousness were Aqualung. Sure, yeah. But I think that for the generation that, that grew up with Tull 
when albums were really coming out, you know, in those early years, I think that this song must have made an impression. Yeah. Going back to ranking real quick. Yeah. The year of 72, 73. In the U.S., the Billboard Top 100, it was 11. Really? Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Is that overall or was that as high as it got? It was the peak position. Okay. So so it, it's it, that's as high as it went. It didn't break the top 10, but still, that's so... Pretty darn close, yeah. That's incredible. I would love to see who else was in that that lineup. Yeah. One of the reasons why this song is so memorable and catchy is because it has a a unique rhythm to it, a unique bass rhythm. Yeah. And that is in part due to the fact that it's in 5-4 time. That's so cool. Which is just like, let's just take a moment and like, think of all the other rock songs that are in 5-4. Mm. <laughs> let, uh, let, me, let me start that list. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so... It's so unique. Yeah. And it's so unusual and it's so, um, can I say ballsy on the podcast, Nick? I would prefer it if you did. It is so testicular that it, that it's such a, it's such a bold move. There's BDE with this song. Is that what you're saying? I'm not comfortable using that expression because I don't actually know what it means. I've heard it on memes. I've yet to look it up on Urban Dictionary. Casual, quiet confidence because you can back up anything that you have. Big flute energy. BFE. <laughs> yes, that. That time, I saw that in my research as well. And that, like, I don't know enough about music to notice that upon hearing it. Right. But knowing that it's unique, when I listen to it, you can hear that there's something extra in there. Yes. And for the most basic of music theory, generally... 5-4 time is they're fitting five beats in where normally you would expect four, correct? Exactly. So so instead of counting one, two, three, four, next measure, one, two, three, four, it's one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one. Sometimes in, in um orchestral pieces, that gets broken down into alternating measures. Of two two and three two. Oh, okay. So you would count it one two one two three one two one two three. Oh yeah. But this way it gives it that kind of like weird off kilter swing, mm-hmm. and they often put these kind of musical stings on the ends of on that five on mm-hmm. the five of the measure, so that it so that it gives this kind of like this suspension and lift. Yeah which then careens you into the next measure. So it's really, I think that's why it's got such a, such a, a lively feel to it, such an exhilarating feel to it, because you're constantly hitting that five like a, like a crest of a wave and then dropping back down into the 4-4. Four, four. There's a driving force behind it, and it almost, feels, it almost feels manic because your body, even if you don't know anything about music, your body can recognize a rhythm, and when it's, there's that extra something in there throwing it off, it's not unsettling, but it's you, you, you can recognize it. You see it. Yeah, I think it's mem- it makes it very memorable. It makes it, it gives it a, a quality of mystery, almost of 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 je ne sais, mm. of je ne sais quoi. Yes, that that's what I was thinking. Just for fun, I looked at the Wikipedia article of musical numbers in unusual time signatures. Oh, cool! There is nothing under the heading of quintuple meter. <laughs> not even living in the past. No. 
what else is notable that we would know? Anything good in there? Um, Mitternacht by Gustav Mahler is in 6-2. Well, that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> it's mostly classical stuff. Yeah. Oh, I Hung My Head by Sting is mm. in 2 plus 3 plus 2 plus 2 over 8. Whoa. I was never good with math. I think that means like a measure of 2-8, a measure of 3-8, a measure of 2-8, a measure of 2-8, a measure of 2-8, a measure of 3-8. So every fourth measure, there's one extra beat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I rem- actually, I know that song, um, and it does. it is really strange. Sting actually does does some weird stuff with time signatures. He has a 9-8 song. Genesis has a 9-8 song. Oh, they would. Which one? Um, Symphony Number no. 1 by Gustav Mahler. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I lost it. Oh, Apocalypse. Oh, I'll have to listen to that one. At any rate, it's not, it's not that no one plays with time signature. Nine Inch Nails, just like you imagined, is in 10-4. 10-4? That's bonkers. Thick as a Brick is in 10-4. Oh, interesting. That's like two five-fours whacked together. Yeah. But at any rate, it's, it's not... It makes it stick out. Yeah. Nick. Yeah. What is your response emotionally to the musicality of this song? To the musicality. What's it do for you? I'm trying to separate it from the lyrics... Okay. But it's very nostalgic to me. Tell me more. Because when I heard this, I heard it off of the Living in the Past album. Right. And that was one of the first ones that, in Benefit, which we're going to get into very soon, were the the first two that were my albums. Like, the first three albums that I that got me into Tull, uh, War Child, Aqualung, and Songs from the Wood, oh. were... Oh, and, and Thick as a Brick. They were my dad's. I... I recorded them onto a cassette off of the vinyl and listened to the hell out of them. But the first ones that were mine. You purchased with your own big boy I got for Christmas. I got for Christmas. JK. (laughs) Because my mom was in one of those cassette clubs. Were Benefit and Living in the Past. I remember seeing those bootlegged cassettes of of yours. I didn't know that they came from, from your dad's vinyl collection. That's so cool. By the time you saw them, that was probably like the second or third copy. The second or yeah. third generation? Of, it's not ripping, of recording onto a cassette. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah, so it's very nostalgic for me. And this was in early middle school. So right. that, was, that was certainly developmental years. The sound itself, and also I'm trying to remove that listening to this and benefit back to back completely together. Sure. This sound is very benefit to me. This has a very benefit feel to it sound wise. Interesting. That's interesting because it was, it was actually recorded before at least a year before, but it was also recorded before they did all the recording for stand up. Yeah. So it's further away timeline wise in terms mm-hmm. of the recording from benefit than stand up is. Those first three or four albums have to have been just floating around in their consciousness until they really hammered a style out. Right. And like really explored that style. Those first couple of albums must have been just stuff that they've been working on for years and years and years. And they decided, oh, we didn't put it on on the last one. Let's put it on this one. Maybe so. Or maybe maybe they were just having a very fecund 
time. <laughs> Not what I expected to come after feckin', but I'll, I'll take it. Perhaps it was just a an explosion of creativity from Anderson in terms of songwriting, and he had the ability to do a lot of recording, and so he just, once the floodgates were open, as it were, once the cork of Mick Abrahams had been pulled from the bottle, the contents of Ian Anderson came gushing out. Mick was uh, stopping up the creativity. Maybe so. Once they pulled Mick from the bung, they, uh, no, Mick was the bung. Yes. Yeah, got him out of that hole. Yep. So who is on this song? It's the regular lineup. Ian Anderson, Glenn Cornick, Martin Barr, Martin Lancelot Barr, Clive Bunker. Let's not forget. And then organ question mark? Yeah. I mean, Dee Palmer was their, I guess, wasn't their go-to piano. I guess they didn't have a go-to piano at that point. Could have been uh, Ian. I mean, didn't he play piano on a couple of tracks at some point? Could have done. And then in terms of the strings, that was arranged and conducted by Lou Toby. Yeah, not Dee Palmer. Was it just last episode, two episodes ago, we were like, oh, I really like the strings. Let's revisit next time we hear strings to see who did it. Right. It's not Dee Palmer. Yeah. Not on this. But actually, it could be because this was recorded before. It could be that after working mm. with Lou Toby, then they found Dee and she took over the strings content from there. Remains to be seen. Oh, man, you're right. We have to keep remembering that we're not doing these in the chronological order of them being recorded. Of creation, yeah. We're doing them in the chronological order of their release. This is one of those those time travel movies where you like jump back and forth. And you don't get the full the full story until the very end. All right, Scott Bakula. Sure. <laughs> well, that's the that's the most <laughs> recent time travel reference you have. That's the last time I watched TV. <laughs> Once that show ended, I was like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> Can't get better than that. <laughs> Can't get better than Quantum Leap starring Scott Bakula. Please join us for our other <laughs> podcast, Talks Scott Bakula to Me. <laughs> Quantum talk, talk leap. No, I got, nope, nothing. Nope. It hurt too much. (laughs) Yeah, so I I just want to react a little bit. This is the song for me that I got this album a lot later than you did in my chronological life. Mm -hmm. And this was an album. I think I actually had this song on on a different album. I think this... Yeah, which album are you talking about? I had this... Oh, did you have it on like a Greatest Hits maybe? Yes, I did. And I'm trying to remember what the name of that album was. This one has shown up on probably every single one of their Greatest Hits because it was so solid. Absolutely. And it's so iconic, as as we've said. But I... Uh... Oh, I don't know what it was. I feel like it was, I feel like it was called like Jethro, Jethro Tull's Greatest Hits or something. I'm on JethroTull.com forward slash discography. Oh, the very best of Jethro Tull. That was it. That was it. Yep. So that was an album that I listened to a lot when I was in mid-high school. And this was a song, if I woke up in the morning and I was like, you know what, world? I'm going to have a good day today. Not today, Satan, I would say to myself. (laughs) And I would put on this song. This would be my like, This was my power pump-up song. This was the song which is now filled by Britney Spears' work bitch. 
I can't I can't decide I can't decide and maybe it's because of that that 5-4 time I can't decide if this song is an upper or a downer for me oh there are parts of it even just musically that feel like they're they're in a down groove as opposed to an up groove well that's the uh, one of the amazing things about this song is that it's it's got such texture to it i um yeah one of the things that i appreciated this song while we were just listening to it is that you know i feel like in a lot of the previous songs where the flute is heavily featured we kind of have we kind of have two settings <laughs> the flute is either like Fluto screamo angst man in Anderson or it's like Dolce vanilla like just so sweet and so like delicate and pure and this is a really interesting kind of mid-range voice for the flute it's got mm. it's got power and it does kind of flare up into some of those untreatable flute conditions <laughs> it kind of jumps up and and gets powerful and aggressive but then it but and then it'll pull back yeah but it never it never kind of dips down into the sentimental right and it never kind of peaks up into that kind of really aggressive angsty or anger feeling it's a great use of it for an accompany accompaniment instrument it's the first really really successful instance of of seeing it used to blend in with the other instruments. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It it doesn't overpower anything else. Yeah. And it actually acts as as a blending agent in a way. It's like when you're cooking onions and garlic and chicken together and you add and and you already have olive oil and then you add just a little bit of butter and the butter just kind of like melds everything together. And it makes everything silky and it, it it transfers the flavors one to another. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Getting hungry. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with an, an emulsifier. Emulsifier? I hardly know her. I'm not sure. What do you mean? Like a... It's a protein that will help gel. Like when you make a mustard vinaigrette. If you do just your oil and vinegar, you can mix it, but it's going to separate inevitably. Sure. Sure. If you throw that mustard in there, there's a protein in there that keeps those, that oil and vinegar together oh. and makes it creamier and keeps them from separating. Huh. An emulsifier. Huh. Uh, egg protein does it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, mayonnaise. Yeah, exactly. Mayonnaise is, is emulsified. Absolutely. Well, I guess in that regard, the butter does have kind of a, uh, it has some butter proteins. I suppose, but it's not gelling anything. That's more just like flavor-wise, I think, I guess right? I'm thinking more more of the taste, yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that's really nice about this song is because we have that lovely string part, mm, mm -hmm. that provides sort of like um, sort of a bed for the flute where it doesn't, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel incongruous because the strings are in there. And so the whole thing just works together really, it really is seamless. It's well woven. It's well woven. Those strings are not... They're the opposite of the D. Palmer strings two episodes ago, where they don't 
really stand out as tall strings. They're nice, they're back there, but they're a lot like the way the flute is in this one, and they're they're more of that accompaniment. They're blending in the background without being lost. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I totally agree that the flute acts as a background instrument, because I think that it does kind of carry the song forward. Yeah. But I do think that it acts a little bit differently than it does in some of their other songs. Yeah, it's the most background we've seen it, I guess. By default, it is a background instrument. Sure, sure, sure. But I just love, I love how it, how it crests and, and peaks and, and then mm-hmm. diminishes. And the, uh, and the energy of the song kind of like will, will rev up and then pull back. So it just kind of is in this chugging little contemplative yeah. idle. And then, you, then they give it some gas and it goes uh, up into some major RPMs. This is an engine metaphor. If we're talking contemplative, you want to talk lyrics? Ooh, yes, I do. Is this song a Vietnam protest song? Or is this song a protest protest song? Oh, well. Those are genuine questions. That, no, that's not I know. a leading question. I mean, so... I don't necessarily buy that it's directly a Vietnam protest song, partly okay. because the British were not directly involved in Vietnam. I don't think so. Let's look up that real quick. So yeah, what would they have to protest? So maybe it is a protest protest song against the protesters of the Vietnam War. To clarify, the UK was not directly involved in the Vietnam War, but they did provide some training and some, it looks like, covert operations. They didn't have the involvement that that the United States had. Yeah. But I don't think that this song is specifically about Vietnam. Okay. And I don't think that this song is about a counter-protest to anyone who was against war. Okay. I think that this song is articulating a certain British tendency toward a type of stubborn nostalgia in the face Hmm. of societal and worldwide economic change. Okay. I know that's like a, that's a big sell, but here's what my research showed. So at this time, at this sort of So like 6970 was an interesting turning point in British economic history because after the huge prosperity of the 1950s and all the big changes that had come with the with the Industrial Revolution before the wars and then all the the factories that were bumped up during the wars in the late 1960s and then going into the 70s, everything kind of started to stall out. Inflation, mm. and now this gets a lot worse as you go through the 70s. But right now, at this point, when they were recording this, it was the very beginning of this of these economic patterns where inflation was growing, unemployment was growing, mm. new businesses were stalling, in, industry was kind of stalling out. This was right around the first time when you would see cheap foreign uh, manufacturing Mm, okay. And they were losing pace. They they were not keeping pace with their big economic neighbors like France and Germany. Okay. But there was still the memory at this time of 
the British Empire and the glory of the British Empire. Sure. So there apparently was this kind of tendency to, and I think it's a cultural thing in Britain. I mean, this is like a, a much bigger discussion. And I, you know, we could interview every British person that ever lived and get a different answer, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that there was at this time sort of a burgeoning tendency to romanticize the past, to be nostalgic about a sort of dimly remembered or pseudo remembered past. I mean, is it make Britain great again? Well, it's interesting because that kind of tendency, apparently, as these economic things started to develop, you know, not everyone had the same reaction. Sure. But the, the big British nostalgia kind of feeling in some people created a desire to be isolationist. Mm -hmm. And that, over the years, developed into the political situation that we see now. Brexit, yeah. That Britain, that Britain is dealing with. It snowballed. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, so... You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a lot to say. Maybe this is like a very academic interpretation of these lyrics. It makes the most sense because without that research, I couldn't make a whole lot of sense of it. What did I go for? The Vietnam War, you know? And maybe there was a sense of that. I mean, I think that, I think that what, one of the reasons that this song is so successful and that it's lasted so long is because it really did articulate this kind of feeling more than anything. I think, mm. it, I think it's an articulation of a feeling. Sure. And it can be applied to any country's situation. It doesn't have to be in that moment. Absolutely. I think that it articulates something which is so universal. You know, essentially things used to be this way and now they're this way. Right? Like, yeah. it's funny. I've always found it amusing living in New York because anyone that you talk to has been here for more than 10 years. Mm-hmm they will inevitably say, oh, well, you know, the neighborhood used to be like this, and now it's really changed, man. Yeah. And I just, like, I always imagine, I always think about, like, the first generation of Dutch settlers 25 <laughs> years after they built, you know, their, their farms being like, oh, man, you know, used to be you couldn't see any other farms, and now I can see two other farms <laughs> right. here in what will one day become downtown Brooklyn. The German... Dutch move next to the Pennsylvania Dutch and it's just the five acres away farm has just gone to hell. Right, exactly, exactly. But it's like, you know, this is, it has always been like this. Oh, sure. Society always changes, always, always, always. Yeah. Unless something is absolutely atrocious, like World War II. Yeah. It's always much easier to remember those one or two points that were really good and dwell on those or a perception that they were good sure right and the the sting wears away after a while so it does become in generally more positive and more n neutral if not positive right you remember the good things and mm. you and you kind of edit out all the bad things yeah but i mean i think that you're i think that you're right about the vietnam angle we'll go walking out while others shout of war's disaster yeah, absolutely. Of course, there were people yeah. protesting the the war, but we won't give in. We'll, let's go living in the past, which ties back into your theory, right? Of looking back into the fifties. Yeah, and maybe more generally, just a better, simpler time. Yeah, or or this sort of escapism of imagining that there was a better, simpler time, which sure. you know, of course, is kind of a, a false construct. 
Well, he would he would be hearing the better, simpler time stories from his parents from the 50s. I mean, he was born, what did we say, 40, 40 something. So he he was a kid, so he wouldn't know anything economically. Maybe not. As he was growing up. But that's this is the last political thing I'll say is like the United States wants to go back to the 1950s. And that was great Seems for to. white guys. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Who run our country. Uh, right. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I think that all of this is wrapped up in this song. And I don't I hesitate to say that this song offers a a statement because it's not saying this is wrong or this is wrong. It's just saying these things are happening are crazy and I'm just kind of going to ignore it and live live in the past. It's funny because I know the lyrics are let's go living in the past, but I also feel like it's it's in a way like let's just close our eyes and, and ignore things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You ignore everything around you because you're daydreaming about the past. Right. See, I, I disagree that it's not pointing the finger. It's not laying blame. I, I think every I think that it is saying everything is crap. This is crap and this is crap. Everything was better then. Let's ignore it all. Let's ignore the war. Let's ignore the revolution. Let's ignore the lives that are now much faster and bustling around in the city. Or is it tongue in cheek? Is it taking the piss out of that Ooh. attitude? Is it saying, you know, is it articulating that kind of feeling in a way to point it out and get and bring it to light and say, you can't, the past is gone, you know? It's satire. Yeah, exactly, in a way, which, you know, definitely is something that we've seen out of other songs. Sure. There's all this stuff happening. Oh, man. But go ahead. Go ahead and ignore it. Sure, everything's fine. You can think about the sun never setting on the British Empire. Sure, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. But there's this and this and this and this and this. No, 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 don't worry about it. But it's in 5-4, and so it's like, it's got that, like, you can't quite, it doesn't quite settle, and so I don't think Mm. it's... I like that idea a lot. I like that idea a lot. I feel like that is more in line with Ian Anderson's role as a kind of provocateur, provocateur, provocateur. Pro- provocateur. Provocateur. God, yes. I think that fits in much more with Ian Anderson's tendency to be a provocateur. If you think I'm editing that that exchange out, <laughs> don't, you're don't you sort dare. of mistaken. <laughs> don't you dare. I've struggled with that word for years. Provocateur. <laughs> I keep wanting to say like a proctor. Oh, that's very different. <laughs> very, very different. I have to go see one when I'm 40. Um. <laughs> okay. I think you made these lyrics work for me. They bothered the hell out of me. Great. But thinking about it satirically. Yeah. It really makes it like, oh, yeah, I can get behind this. Because I, I did like the music. I like the lilty. I like the, the fun lightness to it. But the it, it kind of the the lyrics did bother me, but I like our interpretation at this point. Yeah, because also it's like you know who was he to make a statement, a political statement at this time? You know about what should be done about any of these things. It was all I mean, it was nineteen sixty nine. Everything was just happening so fast, and I think that what he did what was so brilliant was just articulate that moment. Yeah. That's what it feels like at this point. Yeah. If this song was a time period in history. Oh. 
what would it be? A time period in history. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Other than the one it was articulating. No, if you think if you think that is the time period, if you think that it's best representing its own time. If thematically it can't be applied to anything else. I'm trying to think of other periods in history where things were moving at a rapid rate and people were doing their best to kind of ignore it. I mean, it kind of makes me think a little bit of the 1920s, kind of that those glory days right before the Great Depression. Okay. In the States specifically? Yeah, I guess because, yeah, I don't really know what, what the 1920s in England were like. Chinese isolationism? Maybe. Uh, you know, before Matthew Perry came in and was like, hey, guys, look at the world. Maybe. 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 You know, an image that's coming to me is, do you remember when we studied the Civil War in high school? Vaguely. And uh, there was this image from a movie maybe I, I saw, but when the first couple of battles of the Civil War started, people thought it was like a joke. And there were, you know, there were like rich people who... We're like, oh, let's go and look at the skirmishes. And they took picnics and like their wagons yeah. and got dressed up. And then stuff got crazy and they ran away, you know, and like, yeah, it was like a real, you know, like reality hitting. Sure, sure. But I feel like that sort of like, let's go look at the war. Yeah. Kind of kind of moment. It's the Confederates then. I don't know who it was. I don't know. I'm not sure who. No, I'm saying I'm saying this song would represent the mindset of the Confederates of wanting to live in the past, of not wanting to, not wanting abolition. Maybe. And saying, oh, well, well, you're just so newfangled that we're just, we're going to break off and stay our own, like, historical entity of, of ignorance and... and non-expansion while everybody else evolves around us. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a hard one. <laughs> Why couldn't you give me a dessert or something? Because <laughs> we, we do desserts. Okay. One word, like one sentence answer. If it were a dessert, what would it be? Don't think. Just give it to me. Oh, God. It, it would be one of, it would be, okay. It would be one of those yeah, on the Great British Baking Show when they do a trifle. Okay. It's that like in a glass thing where it's layered. And you can see the each layer. You can see all the different layers, but mm. it also is like a bit retro and the colors are a little bit garish. And it's probably got some, some canned pineapple in it. Would it repeat layers or would each layer be completely individual? Each layer would be totally different, but they, but combined they would produce such a mellow, amazing jam flavor and by the time you got to the bottom you're like you'd have diabetes i wish i wish i could go back to that first layer and stop <laughs> myself because it was the most delicious and you also don't eat it now la- I'm you don't throw eat up. it layer by a, you don't eat it layer by layer you have to no that's <laughs> only an insane person would do that <laughs> no that's like I I, I make like, it with the layers like and pathological then I, I cleanly scoop the layer off and put it on a plate Oh my god. <laughs> Jeez. Do you do the thing do you do the thing where you do, where when you eat a can of peanut butter do you like cut a vertical line and just eat the peanut butter on one side so that you leave one bit of flat top peanut butter on the side of the can? That's the best part. And then you work from the bottom back up 
so that <laughs> you need is, is the last yeah. part. Yeah, I have that special curved knife as well. <laughs> it's called a spoon. <laughs> so what else do we what else do we want to say about this song, Nick? That about wraps it up for me. Just to recap, like this is one of their most popular songs. It's been the, it one of is. the most endearing and enduring. And uh, it's been covered nearly a dozen times. Yeah, yeah. And we don't have a concrete explanation as to, to the lyrics, but I, I like that it's farce. I like that it's a, a satire. You know what I think? What do you think? I think that in a generation from now, people will still be listening to this song. You think so? Yeah. So, like, Rook will listen to this song? He will... I mean, he doesn't count because he's my son and he will have to listen to it. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that I think that this will be a song when they look back on, you know, in another period of time when, when we look back on the 1900s, this will be a song that can be used to articulate a moment in time. Hmm. The moment that it was created, are you saying, specifically? Yeah, yeah the moment that it's about. Or the moment that we talked about it on this podcast. That's That was, that was my hope. Yeah. Um, hey, Nick. Uh, yeah, Omen. What are we talking about next week? Next week, another tune off of the Living in the Past album, but it's also our second bonus track. The word is track. It's mm-hmm. also our second bonus track off of Stand Up. And also the B-side release of the Living in the Past single. There we go. Yeah, that first one. It's Driving Song. Well, we can't wait to talk tall to you about that. So while you're listening in the present, we'll be recording in the future. Start reviewing us in the past. In the past. And so you'll finish in the present. So you'll be prepared for. We lost it. We lost it. Too many. Rate, review, subscribe in the present so that we see it in the future. We saw, we have, I don't know where you're from. I don't know who you are, but I saw the one five-star review that we have. It's not even a review. It's just a rating, which is five stars. And it doesn't even show up on the American iTunes. So I'm guessing you're Canada or Australia. That's where we have the most streams on Spotify. So reach out. Put in a review or something, moms at fecklessmoms.com. We will dedicate an entire episode to you. That's not true, but we'll definitely thank you. Moms. T- tell your friends. At fecklessmoms.com. Dot com, dot com. What? They should be moms. Fe- feckless mo- No, I got nothing. <laughs> Woof. Okay, so that's it for this week. Again, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies. And, oh, be sure to check out our new Feckless Moms podcast called Random Encounters. That should be fun. Ooh. Yeah, This by the time this goes up, it'll be a couple weeks in, I think. Wow. That's a lot of fun. And uh, come on back next week. And until then, I'm Omen Said. I am Nick McGill. We are Feckless Moms. And this is Talk Tall to Me. 
Tuck Tooltimi is a proud member of the Feckless Moms Audio Network.